7 series with Greg Davidson, where we tap the biblical number of perfection in creative ways to explore faith, science, and culture. This episode is part two in asking the basic question of whether modern science and the Bible are inherently in conflict with particular attention to origins or the creation story. Recall that in the last episode and today, we are not arguing for the truth of a particular scientific understanding. We're simply taking that understanding, comparing it with the biblical text to see if there are irreconcilable differences. So in the previous episode, we looked at the first three of seven questions, where number one was the start of everything, the origin of the universe. Number two was just the idea of evolution or versus possible instantaneous creation of plants and animals. And then three was continuing on that question of the possibility of evolution. Could that possibly be consistent with God's character, especially noting that that would imply death before the fall? And looking at this question of what, what exactly happened to nature when man sinned. So we're continuing on that theme in this episode where questions four, five, and six are going to be looking at human beings and how they came to be. And then wrapping things up with number seven will be observations about the flood. So number four, the origin of humans. If we go to scripture, to Genesis 2-7, we find it says, God made man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. What does science say? kind of similar to what we saw with plants and animals, the earth brought forth man, humans. If we look back at Genesis 2-7, it doesn't say God snapped his fingers or just said a word and poof, Adam and Eve appeared. He actually took earth materials and fashioned it into a human being. So whether that happened instantaneously or happened over a series of generations of forming earth materials Either of those can be consistent with the text. God formed man from the earth. Now, a lot of people react to that because of the sense that maybe there's a certain comfort level with the evolutionary development of plants and animals, but humans are different. Humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. There's a special relationship there. They would not have the same material origins as everything else. But if you think about that for a minute, And especially if we go back to like the days of Galileo and questions about heliocentrism and geocentrism, for thousands of years up to that time, people had understood the earth to be the center of the solar system and the sun and stars and planets all went around the earth. And the idea that the earth that has the special habitation or the habitation of these special creatures, the pinnacle of God's creation, the idea that the earth was not the center of the universe was to dethrone the importance of humans. The idea that we were just one planet among many going around this much more massive sun seemed to reduce the significance and importance of humankind. Fast forward today, Christians are 
pretty much okay, by and large, okay with being on a little blue dot that is pretty small, relatively insignificant in the cosmos, without losing the sense of God's love that's directed to his people, right? That what makes us significant is not our physical position in the galaxy, it's God's focused attention and love. So, now considering the possibility that humans have a similar process of evolution, that, again, could be an exercise in humility to remind us that what makes us special is not the mode of our creation, it's not the material that makes up ourselves, it's God's singular attention, devotion, selection, and love that makes us significant. It's the endowment of his spirit and bearing the image of God, right? That's not the same thing as how humans material materially came to be. Okay, so that's just the idea of could it even be remotely possible biblically for humans to have arrived through an evolutionary process? But there's all kinds of additional questions that come up. So number five, we're going to look at the question of a single couple versus the scientific argument or understanding that the human population was never smaller than about 10,000. All right, so before we say anything else on that, we're going to go to Scripture and see what it says. So Genesis 127, which we've visited before, says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. And of that female, Eve, we read later in Genesis 3.20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So what does science indicate? Well, according to current scientific understanding, we have over 6,000 fossil remains of individuals, hominids. So not just like 6,000 bones, but remains of 6,000 different hominids where the older the layers they're found in, the less human they look. So we've got these physical things that we dig out of the ground that don't look like modern apes and they don't look like modern humans. Got to do something with those. There's also an indication based on differences in those fossils and the layers they're found in that there were different species of these creatures that actually even lived at the same time. And most recently, the Neanderthals, which have a very distinctive skull case from what modern humans have. There's a more protruding jaw. There's a more extensive brow line, brow ridge. Uh, there's this little kind of bun that's on the back of the skull that makes them very recognizable. And there is fossil evidence that they existed overlapping with modern humans. So have we arrived at this point where, okay, there's no way to reconcile these? Well, hold on. Share a little bit more science. Uh, some years ago, there was a report that got Christians pretty worked up, kind of excited about the idea of mitochondrial Eve, where they, the geneticists found evidence that all living humans today could be traced back to the same mother. But they said that that's not necessarily the same as the biblical Eve. 
because they said that while that may be true, you can also trace human DNA history to a much larger population, never less than about 10,000 people. So even within the scientific understanding, there's what seems like a contradiction, right? That we've got, everybody can trace their lineage back to a single woman, but at the same time to a, a much larger population. Well, it turns out that's not a contradiction. And in order to understand it, so I'm going to repeat myself from what I said at the, the start of this episode. I'm not at this point arguing that the science is correct. I'm just going to help you understand how it's possible for all living humans to trace their lineage back to one person and at the same time to a larger population. First of all, understanding something about DNA. Most people realize we have DNA that's in the nucleus of all of our cells. And during sexual reproduction, that DNA splits into two and you end up with half from your mother and half from your father. So every kid is a, a mixture of the DNA of his two parents. But there's also these little organelles in every cell called mitochondria, not to be confused with the mitochondria of Star Wars. And in those mitochondria, there is another set of DNA that's referred to as mitochondrial DNA. And during sexual reproduction, only mama's mitochondria get passed on. That's the background in DNA. So now, to give you a, a, an example to help understand the idea of tracing a lineage to a single person as well as a larger population. Imagine that you have a couple and they have five daughters. Each of those five daughters marries a guy and they all have five kids. So now that original couple has 25 grandkids. Right? Good luck keeping up with them all. Among the cousins, every single one of those cousins has mitochondrial DNA that can be traced back to a single woman, their grandmother, their maternal grandmother. But at the same time, their nuclear DNA reflects contributions from all of their fathers who are not in that same lineage. All 25 of those cousins share a common ancestor in their maternal grandmother, but they don't all have a sole progenitor because there is a larger population that they came from. So it's at least possible in principle that all modern humans could trace their ancestry back to Eve, as Genesis 3.20 refers to her as the mother of all the living, and to have derived from a larger population at the same time. But, of course, where did those people come from, and how could there be no mention of them in Scripture if that was the case? So to address that, we're going to go to question six, where we're going to revisit the, the character of God. Is it possible that selection of a pair from a larger population could be consistent with our understanding of God's nature. Well, again, using scripture to understand scripture, when we look at the selection of Abraham from among all the peoples of the earth, we're not given any reason for that. God simply chose Abraham. He chose Isaac 
over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Israel, and he chose Israel over all the nations of the earth. This wasn't like some random process, and it wasn't like, well, who is the most righteous or the most handsome? We're not told any of that. But we do see repeatedly that God chooses from among a larger group. So the idea, at least, that God has been creating through a series of generations until he gets to a population, a group of organisms that have the physical capacity to be able to handle the image of God, this relational aspect and ability to communicate and desire their maker, that he selects two from among that population to start the human race. So while that may be consistent with the character of God, it doesn't answer the question of what was going on with all those other individuals. Like, does the Bible have anything to say about them? And how would we ever tell? To address this, we need to spend a bit of time between the Cain and Abel story and Noah's flood. Now, the main topic of this episode is on human origins, but the flood plays such a huge role in arguments about science and the Bible, it's worth spending a few minutes on the nature of the flood. Then we'll bring the discussion back to asking if the Bible has anything to say about possible hominids outside the garden. We'll call this question seven. Did Noah's flood cover the entire planet? So starting with scripture again, if we go to Genesis 6, 17, God says, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. Well, if we look at current scientific understanding, there is lots of evidence for some pretty spectacular floods. But there is no evidence of a single event that is easily discernible over the entire earth. And if we're looking at the, say, fossil evidence of extinction events, there isn't just one. There's at least five different major extinction events that are clearly separated in time. So maybe this is finally we reach that point where we can't reconcile modern science, modern scientific understanding with scripture. But hold on. Let's go back to scripture with the a reminder that we want to try to avoid imposing a, a modern scientific secular interpretational framework on the text. We want to revisit the text with an idea of, of looking at it through the eyes of the original audience. What would this have meant to them? So the word for land this is the Hebrew word aretz. It's used a couple thousand times in scripture. And every time it's used, it's referring to the ground on which someone is standing, uh, the surrounding lands, or when it refers to all of the land, it's to all of the known nations at the time. For example, Genesis 41, 57, the famine that drove uh, Israel to Egypt, it says that all the earth came to Egypt to buy food during the famine. I don't know of anyone who thinks that there were ships sailing from Australia or the southern tip of South America in order to get food from Egypt. The people that were coming to Egypt were coming from all of the known lands around them. Uh, Daniel 401, King Nebuchadnezzar 
was king over all the people, nations, and men of every language that lived in all the earth. And there's another reference that actually talks about being lifted up and being able to see from a high elevation point, to see all of the earth. Now, on a planet, on a globe, that's not actually possible, right? You cannot go high enough in order to see the opposite side of the earth. So there's a clear indication from the context that this is referring to all of the known lands with the expression of all of the earth. First Kings chapter four talks about people from all the earth came to Solomon seeking wisdom. Same idea. We don't think people were coming from Peru in order to seek that wisdom. It's referring to all the known lands. You can even see the same thing in the New Testament where it's not the same word, because it's a Greek word instead of the Hebrew word arets, but you still have this idea of the known world being referred to as all the earth. Romans 1.8 talks about their faith being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And in Acts 11.28, revisiting another famine again, there was a prophecy that says was fulfilled of a famine that occurred over the entire world. So consistently, we see in scripture, in scripture the phrasing of all of the earth, all the land, referring to the, the known nations. And in fact, if we go back into Genesis, Genesis 10 has what's called the table of nations, where it walks through all of the known kingdoms, known nations, that tells us these are the people that are being referred to when the Bible talks about all of the earth being covered. So there's no sense of Noah's flood being a, a global event, but simply covering all of known humanity. Now, objections to that come with the idea that, uh, or one of them is that if it didn't cover the entire planet, then the promise to never again flood the earth is was violated because there's tons of huge floods that have happened since then. Well, if the flood was truly universal over all humanity, there's never been a flood like that since. And there has certainly never been a flood since the days of Noah that has covered all the known nations. So God's promise not to bring another flood upon the earth, all known nations, has not been broken. Okay, from here, we're ready to go back to the question of hominids or human-looking non-image bearers outside the garden. For this, we will pick up with the story of Cain and Abel. In Genesis 4, when Cain kills Abel, his curse is being sent away to the east and banished, exiled, and he makes a complaint that whoever finds me out there will kill me. And so God puts a mark on him to protect him. Well, who was there that he was afraid of? Well, people will quickly respond to that, that both Adam and Eve had more sons and daughters, and they could have given rise to populations that Cain would have been afraid of. But there's actually a, a timing problem and a situational problem. The timing is he's immediately exiled. And if we look at who else is around, right? He's just killed Abel, who has no offspring. And the very next person that is born to Adam and Eve, Seth, 
is specifically said to have been given to replace Abel. So there's no generations of offsprings to go populate that land that Cain would have been afraid of. And we also have a situational or circumstantial problem because if there was people were people out there, then that would imply that some other events had happened that caused God to be upset with them, and they already got exiled ahead of Cain. But there's no mention of any of that. So Cain is going off into a land where there shouldn't be anybody else there. But now consider the possibility that Adam and Eve had been selected from a larger group where they specifically and only were endowed with this spirit and the image of God and set apart. Well, the population that they came from would still appear physically much like them, and it would be natural to refer to them in ways that personify them. Those that find me will want to kill me. I'm going to remind listeners here that I am not arguing that this is what happened. I'm simply describing a scenario where the scientific understanding could merge with the biblical text. So if Adam and Eve were selected out of a, a population of hominids where they are given this unique spirit of God, they are endowed with the image of God, they would be set apart and they would be different than the population they were drawn from. I like the way John Stott describes the idea of not just being homo sapiens, but being homo divinus, like bearing that spark or image of the divine. So as such, there would have been a separation where that ancestral population would have been considered strange flesh, right? You don't go like looking for husbands and wives from that population. But humans being humans and our nature to commit every imaginable possible sin, that not only would some sexual interactions be possible, we'd probably expect it. But given the differences between the homo divinus, the image of God bearers, and these, this population that has human appearances, it would not be surprising if the offspring had different names. So now consider Genesis 6, where it talks about the sons of God finding the daughters of men beautiful, taking wives from among them, and their offspring were called the Nephilim. All right, fast forward. We now have genetic evidence of all living humans being able to trace their lineage back to a single female. And we have DNA evidence from our nuclear DNA of being drawn from a larger population. So if the events, as I just described, actually happened, that's exactly what we would expect to find in the modern composition of our DNA. So naturally, there would be a question of what was the, the nature of that ancestral population? Were they not human? Well, from the perspective of being image bearers, they wouldn't be, right? They would, they would be very much the same as all the rest of God's creation. 
and eventually died out so that we no longer see them today. And everybody around us that looks human today shares the same ancestry back to Adam and Eve. Now, I know that there are some people listening to this that just felt like their head exploded. So once again, I will say that I'm not arguing that this is what happened in human history. But I find it very intriguing that there is at least a plausible scenario in which you could have exactly what we see in science, from scientific understanding, that all humans alive today can trace their ancestry back to the same common maternal ancestor. And at the same time, the nuclear DNA reflects contributions from a larger population. All right, we are going to wrap that up there. If you are interested in more information on that particular subject, there is more on that in the book, Friend of Science, Friend of Faith. And interestingly, you know, for all of the, the, the research I've done just in the normal science world that's more related to hydrogeology and wetlands, the paper that has been read, I get like the most notifications of being downloaded to read are actually on this subject. So there's a paper in Perspectives of Science and Christian Faith that is called Genetics, the Nephilim, and the Historicity of Adam. So if you're interested, you can get online, do a search on that, or go to my website, gregdavidson.com, and find a direct link to that paper. We will wrap up the question of inherent conflict between the Bible and science with that. If you join us next time, we'll consider the question of what evidence is there for the age of the earth that's understandable to non-specialists and non-scientists. Hope to see you there.